Stay hungry, stay foolish. Today's book is a classic. It has changed our understanding of metaphor and its role in language and the mind. Metaphor, our guest explains, is a fundamental mechanism of mind, one that allows us to use what we know about our physical and social experience to provide understanding of countless other subjects. Because such metaphors structure our most basic understandings of our experience, they are, as he says, metaphors we live by. Metaphors that shape our perceptions and actions without our ever noticing them. It is an immense honour and a real treat to welcome the author of a plethora of titles, but the focus of today's show is his 1981 book, Metaphors We Live By, George Lakoff. George, welcome to the show. What a pleasure to be here, Aidan. It is so, so good to have you. I've had a Lakoff experience. I was telling you, I was down so many rabbit holes, excuse the metaphor, exploring so many of the thoughts, neurons were firing all over my brain. And it was just such a pleasure. I'm going to jump all over the place. I'm going to use as much as I can stick to the the journey metaphor (laughs) and stick to the road. But I will jump all over the place. And before we even get into metaphors, George, I thought it was important to discuss some of your work on how the brain does language and thought. Your work resides at the intersections of cognitive linguistics, neuroscience and experimental psychology and you live at the intersections which is a maxim of innovation i'd love to share your origin story where you came from how you got into all this work and all the dots that have connected in between where i came where i came from um well i was born in new jersey a little town named bayonne new jersey uh my parents uh had never made it to high school both very, very smart people who had to go to work when they were 12 and 13. And, um, you know, they insisted that I get an education, which I then did. I had have an older brother by 10 years, uh, Sandy Lakoff, uh, who was, became a professor at major universities. He taught at Harvard and at UC San Diego and so on, started the political science department at UC San Diego. And, um, He's uh, been an inspiration, uh, you know, 10 years older and uh, done great work in political science. So I, you know, have a good model. And um, it's it's interesting when you have parents who never made it to high school and were super smart. And they said, you're going to get an education. You know, whatever happens. Uh, My mother said, you're going to college, whatever that is. And she never understood it. And um, you know, it was really almost funny. Uh, the first I got a, my, my first job was teaching at Harvard. And my mother didn't know what Harvard was, had no idea. But uh, I got the first day I was teaching, I got a call from my mother. Right? And she was last in grade school in 1911, if you can believe this. Right? And she asked, uh, well, how how it go? I said fine. She said the kids did they behave? <laughs> I said well, some smart Alex, but just fine. She said that how did the principal did the principal sit in on your class? Right? It had no conception of this. My wonderful mother, very very brilliant woman who never had a chance to go to high school. You know uh, the. Uh, 
it, it, it's really something to be able to, uh, you know, my mother insisted that I learn things. She taught me arithmetic when I was three. You know, when I was four, she put me to work, uh, you know, doing arithmetic in daily life. You know, namely, uh, at that point, uh, when she went shopping, it was before they had cash registers. And they wrote things down on bags and added them up. And my job was to check the addition to be sure she wasn't being cheated. Fantastic. <laughs> you know, at the age of four. You know, you know, it's, uh, you know, it was a wonderful thing for her to do. I mean, you know, to make sure that uh, that I was going to get educated if if she wasn't. Uh, my father was a brilliant man who um, uh, wound up taking a night school course in accounting and working for the general accounting office uh, and then discovering scandals in the, you know, in, in the government. Um, and uh, he was also a terrific writer. And uh, uh, when he, when he died, uh, my brother uh, was old, you know, 10 years older, wrote an obituary for him and on a lark sent it to the New York times. And they wrote back asking for his picture. And they said he was their favorite letter writer. We never know. We wow. didn't know. But, uh, you know, uh, I had a wonderful father. And, uh, uh, you know, he did all sorts of good things in the world. Oh, that's uh, such a, a beautiful legacy to have and, and for you to remember him so fondly and your mother. Yeah. And my brother is 10 years older. And, um, you know, he became a professor uh, first at Harvard, now at UC San Diego. Now he's retired, uh, but uh, he was an inspiration, a terrific political scientist, and um, you know, um, I, I, I've been fortunate. Amazing. I, I'll come back to then how you progress because you have so many different disciplines in your background: mathematics, uh, arts, etc. Where arts meet maths, and and all the great neurons that fired from there, but. There's something you said there that really jumped at me, which was when you mentioned about your mother teaching arithmetic when you're only three, because you tell us that the human brain is 100 billion neurons, and that we lose most of those by the time we're five. And I thought this was interesting because of the importance of that early intervention and the importance of the love that your mother showed you for education and the seeds that she planted there are so vital in this age where many adults are just unaware of that impact that it has on children. Also, one of the many bits of research I did, you mentioned in 2013, there was an NYT article, New York Times article about African American children and how they were severely impacted by the lack of education in their younger age. I grew up originally when, you know, my parents uh, were poor and uh, we lived in a tenement uh, apartment house that was not, not terribly uh, upscale. And it was next to an African-American apartment house. And on the street, we all played together. My friends were African-American, half of them, you know, uh, and um, on the street, we were just friends. You know, there was no issue of racism. It was just no nothing, you know. Uh, and um, that was a wonderful thing to happen. You know, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, they're perfectly, the, 
people there who were next door were perfectly smart, interesting people. Uh, one of them, uh, my best friend, Anthony, wound up, uh, he was very good at track and wound up going to Arizona State University on a, on a track uh, scholarship. But, you know, the, the, the issue was not whether he was smart. He was smart. No question about that. The question was, is he going to get educated? And how is he going to get educated? Luckily, he got a track scholarship and went to college. I haven't seen him since, but, uh, you know, I'm sure he's doing fine. Uh, and, um, you know, we, you learn about people very early when you're in close contact and you realize that, you know, they're all just people. <laughs> George, about the, the neurons and the connections of those neurons and the, the stimulation of those before the age of five, I thought that was fascinating and, and so important for those people listening who have an influence over children that the, the, the care and the, the, the time they give to children in those early, early days are, have such an, a massive impact on their futures. It's all true. All true. And uh, I, I actually was a single parent for many years. Um, uh, I got divorced and my wife at the time, my first wife, didn't, didn't know how to deal with children. So I became both mother and father. And so I raised our son, who is now a professor at USC. <laughs> went into the family business uh, <laughs> and uh, you know uh, the uh, but it was wonderful to uh, you know to be a parent to from the age of four all the way up through high school I mean just uh, I loved it there's a you know uh, parenting parents matter which is a big deal you know you, who your parents are and how they you know raise you it's, it's very important. And I, I don't think parenting is given as much credit as, as it needs to be. Yeah, it's, such, it's such a huge point. And I know it's difficult for some people, they feel they need to work and they can't afford to be at home. But uh, I just really took that from your work, the importance of those of the interest that's shown by a parent in the child's learning. But I, I wanted to dig into this a little dip, bit deeper, excuse the, the container metaphor there. I just think in metaphors, so it's, it's so your book was such a joy to read. Um, let's share your wonderful work on how a child creates metaphorical thought at such a young age, because this will make sense to people where they can see that it's this frames that we build over time that becomes the lenses through which we experience the world and then the lenses through which we enjoy life or not as the case may be it's it's a matter of the neural system i mean what what is a metaphor a metaphor is uh, a set of neural connections uh, across parts of the brain that are concerned with different areas of life that's all it is uh, that arises very early in your life happens all the time. Uh, you think metaphorically. You can't not think metaphorically. Uh, you know, I mean, the simple thing, you know, prices rose. They didn't go up there, you know. <laughs> more is, some metaphor, more is up. You use it all the time. 
And uh, there are other, you know, lots of other parts of the metaphor system that you use all the time. You don't notice that you're using them, uh, but they're there and, uh, uh, and they're very important. Uh, another part of the conceptual system is framing the way that you structure things um, uh, around a structure called a frame. Uh, my late colleague, Charles Fillmore, worked out the structure of frames, what he called frame semantics. And I took it after he died and uh, started applying it to politics. So I, there's a book called Don't Think of an Elephant, Know Your Values and Frame the Debate uh, that goes into framing in great detail. And um, the, um, it's, uh, it's very important to understanding, understand how you're thinking about things. Uh, and to notice that our politics is structured around metaphors and frames. I thought this was fascinating that if I, I'm a child and I'm observing. So you talk about the subconscious and the conscious brain and you know, 98% is, is the subconscious brain, but we're actually building it through observation, what we what we see, what our parents do, where they bring us, etc. I'd love your thoughts on that. Because this, again, massively fascinating work. It's very, as I said, parenting is incredibly important. Uh, it's very important to give children experiences that can build on that. Um, uh, I lucked out, um, you know, simply because of necessity in my family. Uh, you know, as I said, by the time I was four, I was checking the addition on the bags, <laughs> you know, to make sure my mother wasn't being cheated. And when I was six, I was sent out uh, Sunday mornings to do the, the Sunday morning shopping. And I, you know, knew the prices of everything. And, you know, I, I would go down to the stores and I would order such and such. And I'd tell them how much it was going to be <laughs> before they could tell me. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, you know, to make sure I was a little bit of six year old wasn't going to get cheated. <laughs> and, you know, and um, yeah, the idea of giving children things to do that develop their brains that are just everyday life things to do. Say, look, this six year old can learn things. This five year old can learn things. Uh, and it's, it's a very important thing to see. Um, and I see, you know, um, my son raising his his uh, his daughters uh, to, uh, you know, to be really smart, interesting, amazing people, uh, simply because he takes them seriously. You know, uh, you know, they're they're creative. They can do learn all kinds of things at, at a young age. It's interesting. I, I was telling my kids this whenever anytime I interject, I won't say give out <laughs> as a as a parent, I I make sure they know it's because I care. If I didn't care, I wouldn't say anything. If I didn't care, I wouldn't persevere as they learn something when I can do it 10 times faster. And I think those even just a kid understanding that that this is an act of love, it may not appear for like it. But actually, in an intervention like that comes from a really good place is really important. But I, but I'll move on because there was something you said in, in one of your talks. And um, I found this so great, because I'm fascinated by so many things, how so many things in our, our unconscious, and our, our environment influence our thinking, and thus shapes our reasoning as well. And I'd love you to share this because you say how this happens, 
how how the, the environment shapes our thinking, how it shapes our reasoning, but then how we can actually find out as well. So how we can dig a little bit under the surface to go what is an impacting my reasoning and my thinking? The idea of uh, looking at your own mind is something a lot of people don't do. I mean, they just, you know, you just think and take it for granted. And um, it was something that um, uh, I started doing when I started working with the philosopher Mark Johnson. Uh, I was fortunate that uh, he happened to uh, move to Berkeley at a certain period and uh, uh, happened on his, on his way here. He had been at the University of Chicago and ran into uh, my close friend, Jim McCauley there, who gave him my address and he looked me up when he got here. And, um, you know, he taught me that uh, what philosophy is just the distillation of ordinary life. It's try trying to understand what it is to live. And, um, you know, it's not a highfalutin thing. Now, it turns out to be abstract in many cases because it generalizes over so much. But, um, you know, uh, we wound up writing a book called Philosophy in the Flesh, uh, where we go and point out that philosophy isn't abstract, that thought isn't abstract, that it's part of your body. Thought is embodied. And, uh, you know, it uses the fact that you're, you have a body and are functioning in the world. Uh, and that's something that's not always understood in philosophy. You know, the assumption that there's an assumption that philosophy is this very, you know, difficult, abstract, platonic thing. And it's actually an embodied thing. Uh, and uh, what uh, Mark did was he sort of distilled the metaphors used by philosophers. So in that book, Philosophy in the Flesh, he goes through in his part, the part that he, he worked out, the metaphors mostly used by philosophers. And they are, they're everywhere. Uh, you know, philosophy is a metaphorical enterprise. And philosophers think that they're just being rational, abstract, and, you know, not, not metaphorical at all, and so on, uh, that they're just literal. And they're not. Uh, so what Mark did was work out the main metaphors used by philosophers, and they're in that book. And you can go through and you'll see, oh, oh yes, that's how philosophy is structured. Um, and, uh, and as a result, and what it says, philosophy is a human enterprise. You know, those metaphors uh, are the metaphors uh, of everyday life. They're not things that are abstract and, quote, philosophical, unquote. You know, they come out of everyday life. You know, I really was inspired by that. And it made me think about how many, like, I'm a collector of quotes of really old, you know, ancient Greek work, etc. And there's a quote and a metaphor essentially by Plutarch, the mind is not a vessel to be filled, but a fire to be kindled. And I, I, I it sprung to mind because I wanted to share a piece of absolute gold that you talked about the idea of the conduit metaphor in teaching. Because I thought this was essential for those people who are the audience of this show, people who work and change people who are parents, teachers, 
trying to inspire others maybe with a vision for an organization maybe they're going through massive change in those organizations that this metaphor this conduit metaphor is extremely important the way you position your language the way you inspire others and you're not just telling them becomes so important to how they learn that was worked out by a wonderful scholar named michael reddy uh who i met and um he taught me a lot about it uh, in the conduit metaphor. Uh, he had worked it out in very great detail and um, sufficient detail to convince me that other metaphors had to be able to be worked out in that much detail. Uh, but he was the brilliant guy who figured that out. And uh, the conduit metaphor is extremely important in terms of understanding not just um, the way we understand what communication is, but we actually communicate using our understanding of what communication is via that metaphor. Uh, that's what he contributed. Uh, that's his work, not mine. Um, and um, very, very, very smart guy. That's, and it's so important. And the thing you do say, though, is if I, and we'll all, we'll all have experienced this when somebody maybe is given a talk or has been asked to give, come and give a keynote, usually the speaker will go, well, what's the audience? What, where are they, etc. And they're trying to understand what do they already know. And this, and you, you did teach me this, is so important, because knowing what they already know helps you build upon that. If they don't have a frame already in place, they're going to be lost. And that's very important to understand what they know and how it's framed and how it's structured. Uh, you know, and the same is true when you go into teach a class. You know, you, you know, people in the classroom are not blank slates. They think they're smart, they're interesting people. And the question is, how do you build on, how do you find out what they know and build on it? Uh, you know, rather than, you know, so, sort of say they know nothing. That's ridiculous. You know, your, your students know lots and lots of stuff and you are trying to find out what they know and build on it. You mentioned something there, George, about the embodiment of metaphors or embodiment of emotions. And you tell us about this, the, the full range of emotions impact our metaphors, and thus they impact how we think, how we actually even express how we think. I'd love you to share this. You know, uh, I actually have a long study, a very long study on anger. And the metaphors for anger, the structure of anger, you know, anger is... Uh, not just uh, a feeling, it has a conceptual structure, it has a metaphorical structure, uh, it has a logic, you know, there's a logic of anger and so on. And, um, and that's true of other, of other quote unquote feelings as well. I mean, feelings are things you feel, which is important, right? Yes, they're, in the, they're embodied, they are emotional things that you feel, but they also, uh, have a rational structure. And most people don't understand that their emotions have uh, entailments, things that follow from them and so on. Uh, you know, emotions are really interesting things that way. And I'd love to get digging a little bit deeper there, George, about stuff like, um, you know, what's happening inside the brain when I go to grasp for how do I feel right now? And then actually how it impacts me. So, you know, I'm, I'm boiling, I'm boiling with anger, etc. Well, um, 
that takes a lot of insight, you know, the, um, to understand your own emotions is very difficult, extremely difficult for everybody. And to understand how your emotions impact how you're, you know, talking to people around you, uh, what you're doing, what you're writing, and so on, uh, really matters. Um, you have to be able to, to think about it. Um, and um, it, it's, um, you know, when I was first discovering uh, conceptual metaphor, uh, it happened in an undergraduate seminar in our dining room, <laughs> oddly enough, at a table that's still there. And um, uh, one of the undergraduate women in the class uh, came out on a rainy February day, a little bit late, and we noticed that she was crying. And she said that, you know, we try to discuss some uh, philosophical stuff. And she said, I can't do this right now. I got a metaphor problem with my boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> and she and so she looked around and said, maybe you guys can help. And it turned out that, in fact, um, uh, we did. Um, it was one of those things where, um, you know, she was having, uh, she and her boyfriend were having difficulties. And uh, he, they were using different metaphors that were incompatible. And, you know, the class figured that out. It's wonderful. Let, let, let's share that because because you do. And this is beautiful in, in the book in metaphors we live by, you give all these metaphors, and then you go look, look how they play out. For example, love is a journey. So we're a stuck, we're at a crossroads, etc. Let's dig into that a little bit deeper. That was what was there. Um, uh, you know, our boyfriend had said that that the relationship was a dead end street. You know, uh, well, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, you you know, you can't keep going the way you've been going. You may have to turn back, etc. Right? Uh, and she said, "Well, I a woman said I wanted to go into another dimension. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I wanted to be about more than just what it had been about, and so on. Uh, and in fact, we sat around the table and with her worked out her understanding of what she wanted out of that." Um, you know, it, it, you know, with with you know six people around, six six uh, very good Berkeley undergraduates, <laughs> you know, three sitting around who are smart people, uh, figuring figuring out um, what was wrong with her relationship with her boyfriend and what and what problems she had uh, by having a limiting meta a metaphor that limited her understanding. I wanted to get it back to your background. I, I said I'd come back there because I thought it was really interesting. All the literature on innovation spells out how important it is that innovation lives at the intersection. So it's almost like a, a load of colliding Venn diagrams of different disciplines and different thinking different frames. And you were a walking embodiment of that yourself. So you you have um, been educated in MIT and at mathematics, but also arts is hugely important. And I'm saying that for a couple of reasons, because the appreciation of the arts, the appreciation of music, getting beyond the humdrum of everyday life is so important, because it influences how we think, and therefore it influences how we act. And this is vital for innovation and change. That's true. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's important to uh, think about different dis disciplines. Uh, my wife is an artist. 
you know, and she thinks in a very different way than I think. And I respect it. You know, she can see things, imagine things that I can't imagine, you know. Uh, and, uh, you know, when she plans a garden, you know, she's, um, you know, we have a beautiful garden, you know, <laughs> uh, you know or other things in the house. Um, she, uh, she's a painter and can mix colors. So she mixed all the colors of paint in our house. It's beautiful colors all over, you know, the room. You look, you look at the yellow behind, it's not really a yellow, it's an ochre. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the, the uh, you know, uh, artists can do all kinds of interesting things uh, that not artists would never think of. Uh, and that it's important to be able to think as various artists in different kinds of art um, and to respect it as uh, you know, an important part of our life and our society. Um, so, yeah. Um, and it's important also to think multi in multiple disciplines. You know, uh, the uh, <laughs> I was so. Uh, there was a point at which I was being interviewed by um, uh, a group of Chinese scholars, 50 of them, you know. It was one, quite wonderful because they couldn't understand how I could um, uh, have written about lots of different fields. They have to go in one field and stay in it. And they, they couldn't understand how you could do mathematics and literature and art and, you know, and, and physics and so on. And I said, you know, that's what the, what the beauty of American education is. You know, you can, you know, and European education, you know, in Ireland too. I mean, you know, uh, you study lots of things and they interact with each other. You're understanding of one, one field affects your understanding of the next. And that allows for the creation of new understandings. It's not like knowledge stands still. I love that. And the, the idea of getting swimming outside your own swim lane, you know, that that whole idea in business before about, oh, no, what are you doing, Aiden? That's not your business. And you're kind of going, well, it probably should be. But how did that play out for you? Because because I mentioned that maths and arts and literature background, because the arts is so important as a part of education as well, because so many children, I say children, so many young adults coming out of college are trying to decide what to do. And my my piece of advice is always do the arts, learn, learn to learn, learn to expand your mind, learn to feel what you're interested in, because don't go unless you're certain of a discipline you love. Try to explore the arts. I love your advice there, George. Um, my feeling is to explore lots of things, you know, uh, you know, uh, what was interesting, uh, I grew up, uh, being interested in mathematics, but also in literature. So I had, when I went to high school, I went to, uh, not a very great high school, but there were half a dozen excellent teachers. My English teacher was brilliant. Um, she had gone to Columbia University and studied with a great person there and wound up, um, you know, teaching in my high school, of all things. It's an amazingly brilliant woman. 
uh, in, in English. And so I got very deep understanding of that. But my mathematics teacher uh, was great. I mean, he, um, you know, one of the great things he did was uh, point out, uh, you know, the equation e to the pi i plus one equals zero, you know, as e pi i one and zero in the same equation. Well, it turns out that um, I never forgot that. And there's a book I did on mathematics with uh, Rafael Nunez, my colleague. And uh, we went into that looking at the, the metaphorical structure behind it. Because with all of those things, it, it had to be a metaphors linking them. And it turns out that uh, the square root of minus one has a metaphorical structure believe it or not. Wow. Because what it, think about what a minus, negative, what minus one does. Minus one times a positive number flips it over, makes it negative. Do it again, it flips it back. Makes it positive. You know, minus one times minus one is plus one. Why? Why is minus one times minus one equal to plus one? Because minus one is a flip of 180 degrees. You do two of them, you come back to where you started. That is, there's a metaphorical structure to basic arithmetic. That's right? beautiful. And we figured that out, you know. And there are a lot. There's a lot we, in the, the book where mathematics comes from. It's basically the metaphorical structure of mathematics. Wow. And it's the metaphorical structure of mathematics is beautiful. I mean, it is. Um, in mathematics, you know, I always love mathematics, and I always like both mathematics and poetry. And I saw them as, say, as the same love. And in fact, they are. The mathematics as metaphorical and beautiful metaphors. Um, you know, people think mathematics and poetry couldn't be more different, and they're not. It's wonderful because I think that, you know, learning through metaphor is, is such, it's a much more joyful way to learn as well. I was, I was walking, I, I was walking my son who was eight home from school the other day. And I was like, you know, the way kids are like, what did you learn in school? He's like, can't remember. And I was like, try. And he said, oh, we did subtraction. And I was like, oh, tell me about subtraction. And I started throwing them out and I said, zero minus one. And he's like, minus one. And I was like, yeah, and I said, think about it like the ground, the ground is zero, ground zero, and minus one is one underground and two, and he, and, they, and he got it, it just clicked with him when he could, because he could see it in his mind. And I wanted to get onto that, because you say that metaphor is, is pervasive in everyday life, not just in language, but in thought and action. Our conceptual system in terms of which we both think and act is fundamentally metaphorical in nature. And I wanted to, to see if I have this right to see if our audience gets this as well, because this is a key point, because I understood it to mean that metaphors can be akin to mental models. And they influence our thought and therefore our action and therefore how we experience life. And that negative number stuff is right. What minus, multiplying by minus one uh, flips something by 180 degrees. Right? So what about the square root of minus one? It flips things by 90 degrees because if you do it twice, you get a flip by 180 degrees, right? Do it four times, you come back, you know? 
So it turns out that th there's a reason why, uh, you know, uh, if you do, do uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the I plane, why the why uh, multiplying by minus uh, by square root of minus one is a flip of ninety degrees. That's, there's a reason why that geometry fits the arithmetic. Beautiful. It makes sense. if a kid knows that they they can learn easier, especially if they're exactly. neurodiverse and they see the world differently and they literally see it differently in their mind. Well, it's something that can be taught early, and that's. You know, my mother taught me that, you know, my, my mother who uh, never got past grade school, uh, my parents never made it to high school. Wonderful. Right? Very, really smart, interesting people who just had to go to work when they were 12 and 13. Uh, but my mother made sure I had an education. And so did my father, uh, you know, we, you know, very, very smart people who just never had a chance. They had to go to work early. And um, the um, there is a lot of that, you know, um, a lot of you know people who have who are just very smart, and they need to be educated, you know, and can be, and uh, education is so vitally important. Uh, you know, if you're going to spend money in a society on anything, start with education. Yeah, change changes how people interact with the world. Uh, but I, I wanted to bring it back to something you said, uh, you mentioned about your wife and the art and your own experience and seeing through different disciplines. Because there's a lot of, I'm going to call it espoused neurodiversity out there where organizations are saying, yes, we strive for diversity of thought in our organizations. But it's not always exactly the case. But one of the things you talked about in one of your books was, and this goes to what you were saying about the colors. So to me, that's yellow. But uh, I don't know what the term of yellow you used that your wife ochre, ochre, ochre. So I didn't even know that color, right. And uh, you talk about that, actually, even from a male female perspective, man woman perspective, we see colors differently. And this is interesting, because my other son, who's now 11, he said to me, Dad, you're listening so i i have a well, i drop him to school when i can and we listen to music on the way to school and it's just a lovely calming it's a great moment for me every morning but he said one day he goes imagine we hear the music differently and i said we do everybody hears it differently and i think that's just a beautiful way to think and we see colors differently we experience things differently but we assume we don't well it's it's really true and uh especially with color i mean uh, you know, uh, you know, we have you know, men and women just are different in in these in in crucial ways for seeing color. I mean, and uh, women will see color differently, and there are some women who see a million more shades of color. My wife probably does. They're which are they're called tetrachromates, but anyway, the. Uh, but yeah, uh, the uh, women and men see color differently uh, because of you know genetic makeup, and uh, people don't realize that that makeup can be that different, can lead to a color difference, to a seeing difference, because you know what's interesting about this is color is not there in the world. There are no colors that are objectively out there in the world. 
color is created by your body. You know, there's, there are wavelengths in the world, right? But no colors. But you see the world as colored. And how does that happen in the brain then, George? And, and why? Well, because we are physical beings. Because of the way that our, our eyes are set up and connected to our brains. Uh, that produces uh, uh, an experience uh, of color and it's slightly different for men and women. And, um, uh, you know, so we experience the world as, as if the colors were out there in the world and they're not. They're not there, you know, there are wavelengths of light out there and multiple wavelengths of light. So, uh, you know, anything in the world is going to reflect some sort of light, right? And that you can have complex reflections, but they're, they're wavelengths, right? What's a, a, there are no colors in the world. We see the world as having colors because of the way our brains and eyes and, and bodies are set up. And, uh, you, know, it, you know, here I am, I'm looking out. I look over San Francisco Bay, it's beautiful, blue. It's sort of gray above the sky, a little bit light above the, the mountains, some green in the mountains, green trees, and so on. You know, I see the world as colored, but the, those are not there, they're wavelengths. I read before that uh, birds, for example, see a multitude versions of green because they need to understand foliage. But also then, I thought this was interesting from artificial intelligence because they're training artificial intelligence to pick coffee beans, but they need the artificial intelligence. It's not just green. They have to know all the different types of green to understand the ripeness of the different things as well. So that probably maps a little bit to what you're saying there as well. I had a friend who uh, actually studied what uh, birds saw. They have many dimensions of color that we don't have. And he found experimental ways to study that. Share a little bit of that, man. That'd be amazing. Well, there are like two, two whole dimensions of color that birds have that we don't have. Because they they've just, got an extra bit of oil or something in their... Well, no, their brains are set up in a different way. They also have certain metals, you know, in their brains. Um, you know, we all have iron and stuff around and they have whatever it is they have. Uh, he had figured out what they had, and he he pointed out they had like two dimensions of color that we don't have. We had the brilliant uh, Ian McGilchrist on the show before, and he was telling us he, he has a, a brilliant book on the divided brain and, the, and how the brain constructs the world, and it's, you know, polar opposites and all this kind of thing, and contrast, something that you talk about as well. But he, he said something that was fascinating to me about pigeons, that, you know, when a pigeon kind of like, when a pigeon, you see a pigeon, they look at you at one side of their eye because they have one side that's for focusing and and like say for example they're trying to decipher a piece of grain in a load of stone on the ground they will use one side of the brain and then they have to turn the other side to see the bigger picture and it's like right and left brain because they don't have the they don't have the evolutionary capacity that we have for the brain to be looking through both eyes at the same time to experience the world differently. I found that fascinating. Just you sparked that to memory right now. It's actually, there are actually studies of people uh, that show that uh, if you look out of one eye versus the other eye, 
there's certain things you will you will see differently. Oh, yeah. I mean, because there, what's in one eye is going on the opposite brain, opposite part of the brain. They go across, and uh, that's been studied um, by some folks at Berkeley some about twenty years ago, and uh, it turns out that uh, uh, the two hemispheres that we have see differently. It's and, fascinating. And also, uh, there's an experiment because the left hemisphere has more for language. And it turns out that if you have a word for that, for a color, your left hemisphere is going to see the color and pick it out differently and pick and be able to distinguish one color from another better. So if you say, if you have, uh, you know, a bunch of, uh, uh, you know, slides that, you know, sort of slowly go from one color to the next, like in a rainbow, right? And it's slow. The question is, where do you pick out the differences? Yeah. That was studied. It turns out that if you have a word for the color, your left brain is going to pick out the, the, a boundary in a different place than your right brain. It's amazing. You've, you've seen a lot of different layers on top of each other. Let, let's bring that back to when, when you were saying about, you know, even the color and seeing things differently, the importance of neurodiversity in organizations. So one of the kind of driving forces behind this show is, is helping those people who work in change initiatives to drive change. And we're seeing in some ways a changing of the guard from an old style of leadership, an autocratic one to a more democratic one. And I wanted to just get your thoughts on that. If you think about politics, your work on politics, and you go, how is that applicable to an organization or a leader in an organization driving change? Maybe it's a, a new business model they need to introduce, etc. Uh, when I was seven years old, my father gave me a two sentence account of democracy, which is you're not better than anybody else and nobody else is better than you. Right? You know? That period. Is period. <laughs> you know? Something a seven-year-old can understand, but it really gets to the, the, the heart of the matter. You know, that, uh, you know, this is not a matter of uh, one person being better than another person. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the heart, and, and that has to do with empathy, with caring, with caring about other people. That's uh, never really discussed. Democracy is based on empathy. It's based on caring about other people. And in fact, a lot of our political disputes have to do with people who do and don't have empathy. You know, a lot of the, you know, there are a lot of, you know, Donald Trump has no empathy for anybody else. <laughs> yeah, none. <laughs> and people who see the world his way have no empathy. Uh, that's something that uh, came out in a Bob Woodward interview. Yeah. Uh, a series of interviews. But no, he, you know, there's no empathy for anybody else. And, um, you know, and you, and if you don't, you can understand why he would have that worldview yeah yeah uh and uh the uh there was this uh point at which uh, 
they were at a graveyard for people who were killed in World War II. And Trump said they're suckers. You know? I mean, just... You know? Psychopathic stuff. Yeah. yeah. I mean, a, a different kind of brain. Yeah. I th- and I think that's important to understand as well. And, and unfortunately, the way the world has been structured is a lot of those a lot of psychopaths I, i've i've read once that you know one percent of the population is psychopathic in it yeah, they have no empathy half of that percentage 0.5 percent are in prison and the other half run organizations yes exactly all countries <laughs> yeah yeah and it's it's just a it's a shame i hope i really really hope in my heart that that's changing it's it's gradually changing and it's one of the, the reasons I, I love doing the show and just sharing different thinking and hopefully introducing new frames. By introducing new frames, this is a very important one. The idea that democracy is based on empathy is not out there. And it needs to be. And it really explains a lot of difference between the political parties in this country. You know, Democrats largely are people who have empathy. And Republicans are largely people who don't. And a lot of the political differences and the arguments and the the great anger that you get in politics has to do with whether or not uh, people have empathy. Uh, It's something that is never discussed. I mean, it's it's amazing. It's just like, oh, we give the name, you know, uh, Democrat, Republican. There, this is a part, partisan difference. They're in different parties. Well, there's a reason for the way those parties are structured, having to do with the way people think. That is never discussed in any of the shows on, you know, you, you turn on the, the TV, you have politics all the time, you know, never, no discussion about the difference in empathy which is fundamental to our politics. And, you know, and, and no discussion about how it affects discussions that are made politically. And, um, you know, it, it's a, there's a, uh, a word I made up for this situation. It's called hypocognition, the lack of ideas we need. <laughs> you know? yeah. The idea that democracy is based on empathy is uh, an idea we need. And it isn't out there in ordinary discourse. It's a real shame. And, and you know, one of the biggest requests I have on this show is to make it shorter, believe it or not, do do less because of attention spans, etc. And I won't, I won't seed because I'm, I'm, I don't care about having extra listeners to shorten the show because you can't dig deep enough into things and uh, to use the container <laughs> the container me- uh, metaphor again but uh, one of the things I did want to go a bit deeper in is is you've you've raised it there I did think about this I I looked at the multiple le- through the multiple lenses you gave me you gifted me with through reading your work and listening to the many lectures on YouTube and the one that jumped to me was the political landscape, the left and right brain, the lack of empathy. But then you hit me with the sucker bunch, which was the war argument is war metaphor, because that container of argument is war 
actually is a huge problem. And just to, I'm going to help our audience here, and I'm going to just call out some of these. You'll, you'll, this will just make sense to you. And then George, perhaps you'll deconstruct it. Your claims are indefensible. He attacked every weak point in my argument. His criticisms are right on target. I demolished her argument. I've never won an argument with her. You disagree? Okay, shoot. It's all language of war. That's that's how it is, and um, it's very sad. You know, it's very important. Uh, you know, to get beyond that argument is war, and uh, to understand that uh, it's there, and uh, you know, and to to not fight. <laughs> you know, to say okay, um, yeah. What is, what do we mean by an argument? You know, what you're doing is. You have different views of the world, either worldviews, general worldviews, or views of certain topics, and you differ on those. You, you know, you have different opinions about them, held very strongly. Okay, well, what do you make of that? How do you live with people who have different opinions of these things? And you need to have some notion of mutual respect. Uh, to say and to understand that they're not bad, they're different. You know, there's a difference, you know, you know, and, um, you know, there, yeah, people who have different politics are not necessarily bad people. You know, they may do bad things, things that you consider immoral in certain respects, but they also, uh, you know, they have families and uh, you know, love their children and, uh, you know, are kind to people who are their neighbors and so on. I, you know, you have to sort of remember that all the time. And I, I loved your alternative. And this is just beautiful. And it, 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 I'm going to share this with our audience. So arguments, not a war, but it could be conceptualized as a dance. The participants are seen as performers and the goal is to perform in a balanced and aesthetically pleasing way. And you say in such a culture, people would view arguments differently, experience them differently, carry them out differently and talk about them differently. But we would probably not view them as arguing at all. They would simply be doing something different. And that is just such a wonderful alternative. And, and, um, you know, uh, people have strong feelings about this, but they also have strong feelings about what kind of dance they like. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know? Do you like ballet or do you like modern dance or just, you know, yeah. whatever? Uh, but that helped as well, because I, I thought about that when you when you introduced this concept and I was like, going, OK, well, George may be a great tango master and i'm salsa <laughs> but we we agree that first and kind of go how, how do you dance george and you go i'm i'm a, a tango guy and i go okay uh well I'll, I'll try i'm a salsa guy but i might step on your toes a few times and then we agree and it just changes the conversation it changes it's no longer an argument it's a it's a dance and uh, it's see the question is what are you what how are you quote invested in in this argument and you know is there do you have a moral basis for this if so well what is your understanding of morality 
where does this come from? Um, you know, and you have arguments all the time. You have differences of opinion all the time. And it's it's not always obvious where they come from and what the consequences of them are. Yeah, it's it's uh, and and not only that, it's hard when you're when it's about something you care about, step to step back and say, uh, wait a minute, someone else cares very much about something that's at odds with this. Uh, why is that happening? Uh, what can you do about it? Uh, what do you make of it? You know, it's, it's, it's hard to do because it's so emotional. So George, I, I'd love to introduce another one. And I highly recommend the book because it's got so many here. And, and we're only like on chapter two, George, by the way, <laughs> and there's 30 chapters, they're short, and they're, uh, they're snackable as well. So you can read one each and let it sink in, let it marinate. But um, I'm just full of the metaphors, George, sorry about that. Uh, I, I'll dig into this one, because the idea of how metaphorical expressions in everyday language can structure our everyday activities. And to do this, you tell us to consider the metaphorical concept, time is money. And this one just absolutely jumped out to me because if we think about this and, and I'd let you expand on it, it has absolutely structured how society is built, how society is constructed mentally in our frames. When I first wrote that, uh, a friend of mine read it. Uh, he's a very literal minded person. <laughs> and he said, what do you mean it's a metaphor? It's true. If I hire somebody and it takes these it takes more time, I have to pay him more money. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. And I said, that's the point. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, boom, mic drop. He says, it's not metaphorical. It's true. And I said, yes, metaphors can actually structure your life. We live by them and they become true. And he just couldn't get this. I mean, the, the very idea that a metaphor could structure his life and become true. It was not something he could comprehend. I'll just give our audience a couple of ones here. So you're wasting my time. This gadget will save you hours. I don't have time to give you. How do you spend your time these days? The flat tire cost me an hour. So it's built into all our language and the list goes on and on and on. But I wanted to jump to uh, further, further parts here, because we're not going to have time to get through everything. But I wanted to really share this one structural schemas, George, because here, I'm going to ask our audience to just think about two sentences that I'm going to read out. And then perhaps George, you'll share what's going on here. The first is the road runs through a forest. And the second, very similar, but very different in the brain. The road meanders through the forest. So let's let them seep in and then you share what's gone on there for all of us in our brains, our synapses, our neurons firing, what's going on? Uh, those sentences uh, came up from a brilliant linguist named Leonard Talmy, uh, who has studied not just those cases, but lots of other cases relating to those. And um, the idea is that um, you think about the role that, that you know, uh, lines 
things that are linear, like a road, can be seen as traveling along it. So there's a metaphorical understanding of something that is a line of motion, a line can be understood as a line of motion, as a path of motion. And Leonard Tommy figured that out. And he said, look, you know, if it's a if it's path of motion, there are lots of kinds of motion. Fast motion, slow motion, motion where you're paying close attention, motion where you're not, you know, et cetera. And he found all these sentences that show these differences. So the road meanders through the valley. What does that mean? You know, you think about it, if you're traveling around the road, you're, you're not just trying to get somewhere as fast as possible. You're looking, you know, at what's nice around there. You're looking at the scenery, etc., cetera. Uh, and you're, you're doing it in a way that you're thinking slowly and paying attention to the scenery. Whereas runs through the valley, you're thinking of getting from one end to the other, right? So your understanding of what's going on as you traverse that road is different. And that's what Len Talmy noticed. Very smart guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and I said to you, you're so generous with your your sharing of the knowledge of so many of your your colleagues and your fellow like I have, change makers. I have the great good fortune of living in Berkeley, California, and being at the University of California with an amazing number of incredible people and colleagues and students and, um, you know, uh, just great luck. <laughs> you make your luck, my friend, I'm gonna keep going here, because uh, there was one thing that really, really is so valuable for those CEOs, those leaders, those innovators, those heads of change who listen to the show. And it's that a single sentence will mean different things to different people. So think back to what George was mentioning about the colors and how we all see colors differently, etc. And how we hear a sentence depends on our context. And here's an example you give us, you say, we need new alternative sources of energy very apt in the days that we're in considering the book was written in 1980. And this means something very different to the president of mobile oil from what it means to the president of Friends of the Earth. I'd love you to expand on this because this is a key point in communication. So the idea of sources of energy have to do with what you believe should be sources of energy, uh, what they legitimately are and what they ideally ought to be, especially when you're talking about new ones. So when you say new ones, means new relative to your values. It's not just new objectively, because you're understanding the world through different value systems. So if you're, you know, in Friends of the Earth, you have uh, an environmental value system. Uh, if you're the president of Mobile Oil, you have, uh, you know, a different value system, you're making money off of oil and gas, right? And um, you don't, you, you see the world through your value systems. You don't just, and it's not just hearing the sentence, it's understanding the world. You understand the world through value systems. And, you know, that happens all over the place. 
And those value systems are taken for granted. In some cases, they're obvious and people know that there are these different value systems. In many cases, they're not obvious. And people have arguments that where the value systems are kind of hidden, not obvious. And, um, you know, it's important to see what value systems lie behind what you're saying and what you believe and what you disbelieve and what you would argue against. And George, one one final one, we're not gonna have much time. But uh, to so what, what I'm trying to do here, with all this is to go, I suppose is to go like you say, understand how you think how your thoughts are built, how the language you use is so important for I, one of the things, for example, I realized is, I do a lot of speaking events, etc. And I never use the word argument, I go, I never go, my argument is, I'll use stuff like my opinion or my, my thesis. Because I think the argument, it's an aggressive word. It, you're using the argument as war metaphor. Yeah. If you're doing that. Now, you yeah. Now there are times when you want to use, you want to use it. There are times when you say, hey, uh, there are some bad guys out there, you know, and I have an argument against, there's the word against them, right? And, you know, so there are times when it's appropriate. Other times when, it, you know, when you're saying what you believe, period, and you're not arguing against people, and you don't say, you know, uh, I have good values, and they have values that I think are terrible. Right? When in that case, you're arguing against. So, so something you talked about was contrasts that the brain loves contrasts. So that that would match what you're saying there. Like, I want to express the contrast, I'm arguing against them, because they're bad, and I'm good. And I want that to come across in a container of thought, you want to distinguish them. That means have a line and spatially say, where some people over there, I'm over here, you know, and then what is that distinction? You're, you're, you know, metaphorically spatializing these things and putting them in, in different arguing, you know, uh, in different parts of the world. Yeah. It's so important. I, I just think your, your work is so important for like, it should be essential reading in politics class, <laughs> if there's a politician school. It's it's so so important. But one of the things I wanted to talk, talk about was your cascade of metaphors, because this this theory of cascades is, is so important. And a wonderful and very relevant uh, example that you give is Ben Bernanke's fiscal cliff. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it was a very, very interesting thing to see, uh, you know, how you could possibly understand going off the fiscal cliff, right? Right. So first, you have to understand the economy as moving from the past to the future along a path. So if you look at graphs of the economy, they will go left to right. Left is former, right is future relative to that. And they'll go up or down and so on. Right. Now, uh, when the economy, when your graph of the economy is going up, uh, that's a quote, a good thing. Good is up, bad is down. And that means 
uh, more people are earning more money, uh, which is a good thing. They have more money to spend, more, there's more economic activity, uh, et cetera. Uh, you know, and when the, the economy is down, it means people have less money to spend and engage in economic activity, right? So what is the fiscal cliff? It's a disaster. It means people are going to have so much less money, they're not going to be able to get much. Their lives are going to be much worse, et cetera. Okay? And it means bad is down, good is up. You know, the past is on the left, the future is on the right, right? So you're, you're structuring this thing metaphorically, but you're saying something that is important economically. And you can see why that that really resonated with people because they just got it, and and I think that's one of the things that it's that. You go off the cliff, you get hurt, you know, disaster, you get killed. So uh, I I want one thing that I think is so hyper important to share before we finish up is you tell us that the same part of your brain that we use to do something is also the same part of the brain we use to imagine it. And this is vital for rehearsal, if it's piano, if it's shooting hoops, like your friend that you grew up with, perhaps. And you tell us also, this is the case for language, reading and learning. There's a lot in there, because it involves back to empathy, etc, the work on mirror neurons and canonical neurons as well. Well, uh, in order to uh, you, you know, when you're thinking about stuff, you're using uh, the metaphor that action is motion, very basic action, you know, so that acting is moving, uh, achieving a purpose is getting to a, a, a location, you know, uh, you know, starting an action is being at a place where you haven't started to move yet. Action is motion. Achieving a purpose is getting to a, a desired destination, right? That metaphor for acting is everywhere, right? So you can't not think about purpose, purposeful action without using that metaphor. And there's no way you, you, can't, you can't think about it at all. No purposeful action can be thought about without that metaphor. And, um, and it's important to understand that Purposeful action is always going to be understood in terms of metaphors of that sort. That having purposes is, is going to metaphorically move you to act according to that metaphor. Now, that may or may not be a good thing. And it's hard to get out of the metaphor. Very hard to get out of the metaphor and say, wait a minute, you know. What is my purpose? Do I have a purpose here? Am I understanding purpose in terms of this metaphor? What is implied by understanding it that way? You know, now you can, there are different metaphors for purposes. You can have one metaphor for purposes is reaching a destination. Another one is getting a desired object. So you can and that's and and when you put them together, you can get somewhere. Where both metaphors are there at once. 
you know, if I, you know, I, I got to Chicago. <laughs> Why can you say get, you know, I, I, achieving a purpose is getting a desired object and it's getting to a certain purpose, to a certain location. You put those two metaphors together and you can get to Chicago. <laughs> right. So, but you might be using one of them and not another. And so the question is, do, are your actions and the way you structure your life and your desires and what your future is, does that involve one or another of these two very different metaphors? Yeah. You know, now, that could mean that you should live your pur purposeful life in terms of acquisition, getting property, getting money, etc., or in terms of the experience of moving somewhere exploring the world etc those are different modes of achievement in life and you can use both of them some of both some of one some of the other etc but it's important to understand the difference between them this is so useful for people who are struggling maybe with their lives and the journey they're on <laughs> that to, to understand you know because you talk about this and you dedicate a lot of time to the idea that bigger is better, but it, it doesn't mean that it is. It's just ingrained in our culture. George, I wanted to ask you one last thing, because I think this one is, is so key. Firstly, the, the language we use in change and innovation becomes so core, especially if we're articulating it to people who are resistant to change, which is most of the world. <laughs> but I think understanding ourselves is a step closer. Understanding ourselves is a step closer to understanding bias and understanding diversity and the importance of all those things. But there was one thing that I thought was so amazing, which is the whole idea of frames. Because it's really interesting from an innovation and business model perspective. Because if we construct something like you tell us like a restaurant through a series of frames, or image schemas, I thought then, what if we unbundle those frames and image schemas and start to remix them? because then we'll create different schemas. And if that was me as a, an organization, we've seen this during COVID, our idea of a restaurant was was set, but then it was actually forced apart because those organizations had to change and they had actually changed their businesses as a result. But I thought looking at that through image schemas and frames was an interesting perspective. First, the idea of frames, uh, was invented, frame semantics, invented by my late colleague, Charles Fillmore, uh, who saw frames just as a matter of linguistics. You know, he just said, look, uh, you know, uh, your meals of the day are framed as breakfast, lunch, and dinner. That's a frame, right? Uh, and so on, and he has lots and lots of examples of this. Uh, you know, modes of transportation, etc. The frames for all sorts of things. You structure your life in terms of your understanding in terms of frames. And frame structures are very simple structures. Uh, there's, they're what are called gestalt structures. Uh, think of a single uh, geometrically as a node with a number of other nodes that are form a single uh, image or gestalt, right? And the nodes are alternatives, choosing one or another. That's all it is. 
right? But they're related. There are relationships between them. So they're they're different and they're related in certain ways. Or, you know, and, uh, you know, they might be mutually exclusive. One may entail the other. They might be have other in, uh, relationships between them. So they're connected in that way. And that's what a frame is. And you structure all sorts of things in your life and politics and every area of life in terms of these frames. That's what Fillmore figured out. Now, Fillmore saw this as just a matter of linguistics. I looked at this and said, my God, our politics is set up that way. Our values in life are set up that way. <laughs> you know, um, uh, Chuck Fillmore didn't want to think about it that way. He wanted to think about himself as just doing linguistics, not doing <laughs> politics. Swim lane, <laughs> swim lane, not man. Values in life, just doing. I I study language, period. You know? <laughs> and I said, you can't do that. <laughs> you know, you your idea is so deep that it, it encompasses all this other stuff. Uh, and I have a book on framing. Uh, you know, don't think of an elephant. Know your values. Frame the debate. And it'll, you know, that book will explain all this stuff about what frames are and how they work. Uh, and they're everywhere. And they're especially there in politics. They're extremely important in politics. For You, you know, you can't set goals without framing things in one way or another. There's no way to do it. You have to frame things in one way or another. And uh, you can't... Um, decide what you're going to be doing without framing things in one way or another. Uh, you know, you can't set schedules without them and, and so on. And it's important to recognize the structure of framing. So uh, the book is Don't Think of an Elephant, Know Your Values and Frame the Debate. And it's a cheap book, Chelsea Green Press. And uh, But uh, the guy who figured this out was, was Charles Fillmore, a great linguist. I thought about the importance of that. Understand what a frame is in order to reframe it, in order to innovate. That's how you change things by reframing them. So I thought it was so, so vitally important. With that in mind, I wanted to ask you one final question, and it is what metaphors we live by today do you think are dangerous? And maybe we need to update them or retire them. What would be your message to our audience? We need to understand that democracy requires empathy. And we don't have that. Right? It means caring about other people. And there are people who have no empathy. And they will see democracy as just being able to make whatever choices they want. So but the whole idea that you have democracy doesn't make any sense without empathy, without caring about other people. That's why you, know, uh, you have all sorts of autocrats showing up on the right. You have right-wing autocrats who are you know, doing things that are not for the people, they're for themselves. And it's important to understand that. Democracy is based on empathy. Autocracy doesn't have it. And that's why 
you just, you know, autocrats are dangerous. So, and it's not said. You know, you watch all the political TV shows you want on, you know, on, on your, your favorite channel, and it'll never be said. But it needs to be. You know, it's, it's sort of, yeah, it, it's sort of the basis of understanding democracy. So that's that's one thing I would say is really important. And George, for people who want to find out more about your work, your books, Frame Labs, where can they find you? <laughs> Go to Google. <laughs> <laughs> He's everywhere. A lot of books, so, you know. Uh, they're, look, they're, Metaphors of the Pie is a wonderful book, and I recommend it. Uh, and um, and actually, it's been uh, one of the 20 most cited books in all the social sciences ever. Wow. It's uh, amazing. But it's been out there. A lot of people have read it. Uh, you know, you can read it in a night. Uh, bigger things like philosophy in the flesh are serious 600-page things. Um, there, if you're interested in mathematics, where mathematics comes from, which uh, I wrote with Rafael Nunez, is a wonderful book on how mathematics is metaphorically structured. Why does mathematics work the way it does? You know, people think mathematics is like objective out there in the world, etc. And the fact is, it's metaphorically understood fundamentally. You know, it, you know, uh, you know. I mean, the simple thing is a line. Uh, a sequence of points. That's a metaphor. Line doesn't have to be a sequence of points. <laughs> Just be a line. No? But it's a metaphor that's there in our normal mathematics. And they go through lots and lots of others. Uh, they're all over the place. Uh, and um, the um, to understand mathematics metaphorically, it makes the mathematics into poetry. And mathematics is beautiful. That's why it's beautiful. Uh, people who teach mathematics don't generally teach the beauty of it. I was fortunate. I had a high school math teacher who actually taught some of the beauty of it. And I'm eternally grateful to that, uh, to him. And uh, I remember vividly his lecture on e to the pi i plus one equals zero. And I said, Oh my God. <laughs> and eventually we came to understand that we have a study of the metaphorical structure behind that equation and where mathematics comes from. Uh, it took a lot of work to figure that out. And it's, and it's a beautiful thing. I mean, mathematics is so beautiful, so poetic. I wish I had you as my maths teacher back in the day, man. <laughs> I, I probably would have done a lot better. George, it's been an absolute, absolute pleasure and an honor. And I thank you for your time. You're so generous. And you've, as I said, you've sparked so many neurons for me, I'm going to be going down rabbit holes for a very long time. And to use one last metaphor to thank you. Thank you for all the gifts you have given society. It's been a great pleasure speaking to you, author of Metaphors We Live by George Lakoff. Thank you. I want to thank you, Aidan, because wonderful interviews like this are rare. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. That's a lovely gift. Thank you, man.